Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. And if I seem a little tired, I was just telling Sean as we were setting this up, do you ever just feel like you hit a wall? I felt like today I was like going around doing my things, you know, going about my day. And then all of a sudden I was like, and it's only, it was four o'clock right now. That's not that late. But sometimes some days are just like that. I feel like that's happening in COVID too, where I just like hit my limit with COVID stuff where I'm just like, I can't think about it anymore. I can't deal with it anymore. I prefer to ignore this. And I think that's okay too, as long as you're still being safe, obviously. Um, But sometimes it's just like, I just can't, I can't participate. I'm overwhelmed. So I don't know if that helps any of you. Also, I've been going through this phase where I feel like every morning I'll be like, I have so much time. I have so much, so much time. I think I'm going to start getting back into learning French again and doing this stuff and that stuff. And oh, and I make my to-do list and I'm like, I think I'll be able to accomplish those things. And then boom, my day is like, I don't know, taken up by things I forgot I had to do or emails that come through and they need follow-ups. And then I'm like, wow, it's already 2 p.m. <laughs> so I don't know if that helps you feel any bit more normal or validated. I, you know, that's why I wanted to offer it up. Just hope that it's maybe helpful because that's what I've been going through lately. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have, as per usual, we have 10 questions. And if you're wondering where the questions, I, where I get them from, I get them from the community tab of the Opinions That Don't Matter YouTube page. So you can ask your questions there. And then I pick the ones with the most thumbs ups. So, um, and then I, yeah, I just pick the top 10. So here we are. And sometimes I know it doesn't put the ones with the most thumbs up at the top. I do my best to sort them, but you know, we're not perfect. So we, we try. And so you can always continue to ask and hope that, you know, it will get seen the next time because I, you know, we do our best. Okay. Let's get into these great questions as always. Question number one. Um, oh, hey, Katie, thanks for all that you do. You're very welcome. I'm glad that you find it helpful. It says, my question is, how do I find meaning in my life? I struggle to find, I struggle Uh, to find my purpose and feel like giving up constantly. And there were a couple comments on this too, where people said like, oh, I'd try to find something that I liked. And then by the time, like the time that comes where I have to like do the thing to take care of myself, I'm like, oh, I just don't want to. And part of me, so I want to address a component of this that could be feeding into it and making it worse. And that is depression. Depression robs us of any motivation, excitement, enjoyment. And I, I don't, not to alarm anyone, but I, I believe we're all suffering from a low-grade depression right now. And I know that seems like very intense. And you're like, Katie, how can you say something like that? Because 2020 and COVID and all the shit that's been happening, it's been a lot and it's hard and it's okay 
to struggle and to feel down and to not, you know, not enjoy the things you used to feel sad most days, like to, to have some depressive symptoms, have major depressive disorder. I think a lot of us do right now. So I want to throw that out there because part of me feels like that could be feeding into the struggle to find meaning in life because right now things are, are difficult. Depression can cloud our judgment, take away our hope and our enjoyment, and therefore we can feel pretty bad, right? And we can feel like life has no meaning. Why am I even trying and all that stuff? So I just want to throw that out there because that could be the reason. And if you feel like, yeah, maybe I have been had a tough time getting out of bed and I have had a tough time staying motivated and concentrating or there's changes in my sleep or my appetite, any of those things, you can watch my videos about depression. Um, If you feel any of that, please see a professional. Please get some support and some professional help because it, it can and will get better. But when it comes to finding meaning, the real... Not the real way, because there's tons of ways to find meaning, but I I want you to be curious about things in your life that you enjoy or things that you're good at. And I, I just made a video that'll go live. I think it's next Monday. It'll probably go live about like building confidence and feeling better about ourselves. And part of that is in DBT, we call it, we call it building mastery. And that means that we need to identify and cultivate our strengths. And I know if you're feeling depressed, especially your brain just went, I'm not good at anything, Katie. This advice that you're giving is bullshit and it's not going to be helpful. And the truth is, we're all good at something. The problem is that we often assume that everybody's good at those things. You know, some things that we do each and every day that we're really good at. Even at that thing, because this is one personal thing that I'm actually very good at, is organizing, like planning out my days. I'm really good at that. Does that seem to be a thing that I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I'm so glad I'm good at that. No, it's not. It it, it is rewarding, I guess, in its own way, like long term or like my ability to write books or, you know, accomplish things in a timely manner. Like it definitely rewards me that way. But it doesn't seem like a very exciting thing <clears throat> to to, to notice or to think that that's something that could bring, you know, me excitement and joy and meaning. But if we're curious about things like that, and we notice the strengths that we have, and we notice the things that we get excited about, like, for instance, I get so excited about outdoor activity. I love to do outdoor activity. I love to be outside. I also just love to be away from home for short periods of time, because when I'm not at home, there isn't a, as much like stuff that I feel like I should do, you know, like laundry, dishes, uh, picking up around the house, just garbage stuff, right? I, so those are things that I get excited about. I want you to be curious about this because instead of being like, what's the meaning in life? I can't find meaning in my life. That feels overwhelming. Even that statement alone, I think a lot of us were like, and I glazed over it. Like it's too, that's a big ask, Right. However, I do believe that if we can identify some of our strengths and some of the things that we enjoy, uh, things that we look forward to doing, like let's focus in on those types of things. Let's write about them. Let's close our eyes and imagine ourselves in a spot doing the thing. Like, like for instance, for me, I could be like, oh, I, I'm going to close my eyes. And I imagine Sean and I on, at Mammoth and we're snowboarding. And then I could like think of another, like us being up at the mountain and going mountain biking or, hey, we're just having a hike and we rented a cabin. Like we can tell ourselves these stories and we can enjoy it. And I want you to tap into that because out of those things that bring us joy, the things that we're good at in there, 
is our meaning in life. And I know that that sounds very simplistic, but I think we try to, I don't know, we put meaning on a pedestal. Like, what's the meaning of my life? It needs to be this thing that helps other people and makes me look and feel good. And it's all of these things when really true meaning just comes from the joy that we experience in doing things in life. And that could be relationships that are important to us. That's another thing you could think about, like things that bring you joy, things you look forward to. Maybe one of those things is connecting with friends. And I would believe that for a lot of us, COVID has kind of taken a lot of the meaning and the things that we like out of it and out of our life. And it's made it really difficult. And so I just want to honor that and let you know that that's okay. We need to be a little bit more compassionate and understanding with ourselves right now, because this year has been rough and that's the, an understatement, you know? So dig into those things, see what you come up with, enjoy being curious about it, write about it, imagine yourself doing it. Let's get into that because it's in those things that we'll find the meaning. Meaning in life comes from a lot of different places. It's not just one big thing. Like my meaning in life is to be a, you know, civil rights activist, or I'm going to change law that's been affecting people, or I'm going to Yes, we can find meaning that way. But even personally, as someone who puts content out to the world in hopes that it will help people and empower them to make better decisions about their mental health, my meaning comes from the contact I get with my grandma and being able to get outside. So don't think that it has to be this one big thing. It can be a lot of different things, you know, because I derive meaning from this that I'm doing right now, from the relationships I have and the activities that I can do that bring me joy. So yeah. Give that a go and keep us posted, okay? Moving on to question number two, it says, hey, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. My dad left when I was eight and recently he reached out to me for the first time in 10 years. Wow. I repressed the feeling for so long that I truly lived in a happy delusion of believing my dad leaving had zero effect on me. We do that. It's repression. It makes sense. Keeps us feeling good, right? Helps us move forward. When he texted me, every emotion came rushing back, anger, sadness, etc. And it's just so hard to know how I feel. I was too young to really have memories of him and my entire life I repressed my feelings surrounding him. Since then I felt depressed. I can't eat, I can't sleep, and I live alone so I have no one to talk to. Why does it affect me now more than it did before? What can I do to get back to the way it was before? Also, I'm obligated to... Am I obligated to reconnect now that he wants to make amends? Thanks, love you, and love your videos so much. Oh, I'm so glad. This is the great questions. First of all, I'm really sorry that this is happening, and I'm sorry that your dad was such a dirtbag that he thought it was okay to just leave and not be in your life for 10 years. And that's sad for him because he missed out on getting to know you, and that's really a bummer for him um, and for you, right? So, okay, repression is very normal because if we just uh, – Often, especially when you said you were young, right? I don't know how old you are now, but you were saying that you were like a kid. So you didn't really know him. The it's tricky. Okay. So when we're so young that we don't even really know him, we don't really have the tools or even the knowledge to process what's, what's taken place. And that's hence the repression, right? I talk about dissociation and other uh, things kind of like in the same family as I would say, you know, repression is, I think, uh, dissociation, repression, um, flashbacks, they all kind of hang out together in this like, really unhealthy family. (laughs) But it helps us deal, right? It's like, we can kind of manage the trauma or the upset that we're going through by utilizing these tools. And then it kind of comes out. That's why I added flashbacks in there, because then they come up 
you know, when it's like, hey, time to process this. But unfortunately, you didn't get to do it on your own time. It, be- it was because he came back out of hiding, I guess. And so, okay, let me get into the question. So I just wanted to make, make sense of the repression and, you know, why you repress the feelings surrounding him is because we don't really have tools or understanding to process it at the time. And I think that doing, taking action to process through that grief, that loss, that anger, and everything that comes up for you could be really healing. And that would really be my overall advice on this is to find a therapist that helps. Um, honestly, any therapist you feel really connected to who I feel like any therapist should be able to do this. I don't think you really need like an attachment based or CBT or any specialist. I think it's really just someone that you feel connected to who you feel you can open up and talk about what happened. Um, That's what's important. Okay, so let's get into your actual questions here, because I just wanted you to understand like why you might repress something and, and how that's adaptive. And it's actually like, give yourself a pat on the back for surviving it and getting through because repression is a tool that we can use to help us manage during things that are really horrible that we have no control over, right? Okay, so the question is, the first question, why does it affect me now more than it did before? We're making a lot of assumptions here because my guess would be that you don't even remember what it was like when he first left. You don't have any emotions attached to it because we were too young to even process it. We just stuffed it down. So we can't actually say that it's affecting you now more than it did before. It's just affecting you differently because you're more aware, you're older, we have more emotional intelligence, right? So we can recognize all that we're feeling. Back then, it probably didn't feel, I don't know if safe is even the right word, but it probably didn't feel okay for us to be upset. Maybe I would assume left you with your mom. So your mom might've also been upset. You could have been a parentified child, like taking over that role. Like, it'll be okay, mom. We don't need him. It's okay. We're good. And like maybe being the perfect child, like I won't give my mom any more stuff to deal with because she's already dealing with the fact that my dad's a dirtbag and left. I'll get straight A's and I'll do all the things in school. There's a lot of ways that we can try to cope with this and try to navigate it. And I'm not sure which way you went about it, but just the fact that you repressed it tells me that it's it affected you because repression doesn't happen with normal memories or more normal situations, right? It was upsetting. It potentially was traumatizing. And so either way, it was too much for our brain to process. So we stuffed it down. And so I wouldn't say that it's affecting you more now. It's just different. And so I think that um, kudos to you for having more emotional intelligence now so that you can feel these feelings so that, and then what can I do to get back to the way it was before? I don't really think that's our goal. Um, I know this is hard to hear. And sometimes I do these things in therapy when I know I'm saying something that my patient is not going to enjoy and they're going to be like a little like, ugh. but I want it to go back to the way it was before. And I understand repression is comfortable, but so are a lot of unhealthy coping skills and repression is good for white knuckling through shit times. But then there comes a point when we have to let go of this tight grip and allow ourselves to experience life. Otherwise, what happens when we repress things is that we tend to repress a lot of things and we struggle to to find a way to feel feelings uh, naturally and, you know, kind of quote unquote normally in life. We instead, we're like, no, no, I don't have a right to feel that way. Or who should I take care of first? Especially if we were a parentified child to be like, wait, no, their emotions are more important than my emotions. I'll put them first. I'll ignore how I feel or my feelings aren't valid or I don't even know what they are. You know, there could be a lot of things that come along with this. And so I, unfortunately, I don't, I don't want it to go back to the way it was before because I don't really think that's our goal. That's not really a healthy place for you. 
what I would really encourage you to do is allow yourself to grieve. Allow yourself to feel it. It fucking sucks. Not that my dad left us when I was young or anything, but he died when I was 24. It was devastating. And I was angry at him for a long time, which I know it maybe doesn't make sense. And I know he passed away. It's different. But I want you to know that even though letting myself go through those emotions of like anger, sadness, uh, bargaining of like, but why couldn't he have just stuck around a little longer? Like he didn't get to meet Sean and so depressing to me and upsetting him. I could really wallow in that. And it's okay to wallow sometimes. It's okay to let yourself feel it. It's okay to grieve. And I wrote my dad a bunch of letters after he passed about all the things I wished he could have been a part of and how I was disappointed that he wasn't and, you know, angry at the world or whatever. And you could do the same thing. You could write a letter not to send. And obviously my dad passed away. Where am I going to send it? You know, write it to heaven and put it in the mail. Best of, best of luck to people who want to do that. And that's fine too. Um, but writing a journal, a letter to your dad about all the disappointments that you felt because of that or all the things that are sad or maybe anger is usually the easiest to come out. That's what I felt for probably like six months after my dad passed was just anger. I was just pissed all the time. Poor Sean. I remember, unfortunately, you guys now just being honest about my life and things that I've struggled with is I was so grief stricken and so angry that there are a couple times we'd go out with friends to get drinks and I would turn into like a rage ball and I would get mad at him and I'd just like get a cab and go home. It was fucked up, you guys. I was so, I'd be like, you're a dickwad. I don't want to be here. I would just like lose it. And Sean was so patient. Like sometimes I just, I'll randomly I'll be sitting here with him and I'm like, thanks for dealing with me. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I was a lot for a while. He's like, no, you were fine. You were just grieving. And I just, I say that to let you know that like, however you want to feel and however you need to express it, let it out or it ends up coming out. That was when I was like, wow, I think I should increase my therapy sessions to twice a week. <laughs> oh, this is rough, you know, because I'm usually a very love being out really gregarious person. And that wasn't just not like me. So letting yourself write about the things you wish he was a part of the things that you're mad about him being a jerk, him leaving you and your mom, the fact that, you know, he thinks he can just pop back up, write whatever you want, vent about it. It's okay. Then be sad about it. Cry, write a different type of letter. You can write as many letters as you need, as journal, many journal entries as you feel necessary to help you process it and just feel what you needed to feel and haven't allowed yourself to at all up until this point, maybe, right? So that's how we get back to a healthier, happier you. Because I will be honest, speaking on my personal situation, it probably took me, and I know this, mine might be a little more complicated, and maybe yours will be faster, but it probably took me a good year and a half to two years in therapy to get to a point where my grief was manageable. And I am say manageable because um, I used to just cry randomly, and I would feel overwhelmed, or I'd get angry when I was out. Like These were th- symptoms of something that was going on inside me that I wasn't giving myself an opportunity to process. And so um, it took me a while to get through it, you know, and to to feel it. Also, I'm really stubborn. <laughs> and I like to like, I don't know, ignore how I feel and pretend things are going to be okay. I think we all can kind of, hey, that's me. Um, and so it took me a while to like succumb to the process. So it does get better though. And then the final component of this is also, am I obligated to reconnect now that he wants to make amends? No, you are not. Um, I've talked about this on other podcasts about how I don't, we don't owe parents anything. 
and I know people can get pissy about that. And actually nobody has, but I'm just saying that maybe there's a shitty parent, a narcissistic parent out there that's listening. It's like, oh, my kids owe me everything. Well, fuck you. Cause you don't, they don't owe you a thing. Parenting be, be deciding to become a parent and have a child is a choice that you as a person make. And when you make that choice, you, you already have signed up to change diapers and feed them and take care of them and make sure they can get to school and to do all the things a parent does. And, you know, those are things that just come along with the decisions that you as the shitty parent have made. Um, and so just because you did that does not mean that your children are always on the hook and they always owe you because you did those things. Uh, things that were are done with strings attached are not done with joy. That's like guilt and, uh, I don't know, can throw us into a shame spiral and it's bullshit and I do not subscribe, unsubscribe. Um, and so I really want you to know that you get to decide what's best for you. And I would, I would encourage you to take your time on this. Like he texted, you don't have to reply. There's no time frame on this. Also, you have every right to block him if you just do not want these kind of emotional bombs to be dropped in your world. That's fair. Um, but I would talk about it in therapy because I want you to make the decision that's best for you. I want you to be able to think it through. I, I don't want you to be acting out of anger or avoidance or guilt or any of those things. I want you to be able to consider what happened, consider how you feel about it, consider what you really need, and consider if there is a benefit or a cost, which ways, you know, which is more to you, which is there more benefit or more cost to reconnecting with him. And then you make the best educated decision you can, knowing farewell that if you change your mind at another time, you can always cut contact at that point, or you can try to reconnect again. So don't, I don't feel like anything is like cut and dried, but I want you to just take your time with it because this is a big deal. It's a big decision and he does not get to, you know, make the terms and the timeline on this, but you can decide to be part of it or not. And he, maybe he decided, maybe he's been thinking about it and decide he wants to reconnect. Okay. Well, that's his choice. That doesn't mean you have to comply. So I just want you to know that no, you're not obligated. You don't owe him a damn thing. If you decide that you want to have a relationship, that's because that's what's best for you. And that's what you want. And again, no judgment either way. This is what's best for you. If you want to connect, if you want to cut him out of your life, because he's already not, not really been in your life, whatever, that is fine. And I support either decision. There's no right or wrong here. It's more just what's best for you. And so I just encourage you to keep bringing it back to that, even as the guilt comes around and then the anger floats into the space. Just what do I think is best for me? And I support that. Okay, I hope that's helpful. And what a great question. And I'm, again, I'm so sorry that God parents, right? It always kills me when, when people because I've had parents come to my office, even though I don't see kids that often. But some even adults sometimes still live at home, right? We can be 18, 19, and live at home. And some parents will come in and I can't tell you how many times over the years I used to even do this family group where some parent who's clearly like somewhat abusive or toxic or just narcissistic. I'm not really sure where it's coming from, but I'm like, Ooh, this is not good. We'll say something to the effect of, you know, I did the best I could. There were no, uh, there were books like they are now that were out or there wasn't a best way to be a parent. I did the best I could with what I knew. And I'm like, I like how you say that is if that is a defense of your shitty behavior, you know, it would be a better, more therapeutic response and less defensive would be I did the best I could. And now that I'm older and we're dealing with this, I recognize, you know, that that wasn't enough or that was incorrect. And I'm doing, I'm doing my best now to try to correct that. That would be so much better. 
Doesn't that just feel better? Ooh, I love that. With all of us like defensive, like I did the best I could. Yeah, yeah. Well, it didn't turn out. It didn't. It didn't work out. You know, it's like it's like my sister in law. She's always trying her best when it comes to baking brownies, and they never turn out. <laughs> Sometimes we try our best and it doesn't work out. People just need to acknowledge that. <laughs> anyway, I could get on a whole soapbox about that. Let's get into question number three. It says, "Do therapists really mean it?" when they give you compliments? Or are they just saying it to build the therapeutic relationship? Great question. I've had therapists say things like, I'm in awe of you, or I was completely blown away when you said dot, dot, dot. I find my inner voice saying, they're just saying that because they're my therapist. Thanks, Katie. Sending lots of love. Sending love right back to you. This is a wonderful question and kind of interesting. I had to think about it at first because I was like, the one thing about being a therapist that's interesting is that we do offer what's called, uh, what is it? It's like, uh, unconditional positive regard. And I'm, I'm going to pull that up because I don't, I, I could try to, um, tell you what it means, but it's a thing that you try to use in therapy as a therapist. And it was, um, I forget who came up with, it. I think it's Carl Rogers, but he's just a, a psychologist, you guys. And he, he, I forget the type of therapy that he used to do, but it was, unconditional positive regard is what he would tell people to do, I think. Um, and it, it's okay. This is what they say. According to Rogers, I was correct. Oh, yay brain. Yes. Sometimes my brain, it just comes up with things and I love it. it says according to Rogers, unconditional positive regard involves showing complete support and acceptance of a person, no matter what the person says or does. And I think for a lot of people, they don't understand that that's how therapists work. And the reason that we do that, this unconditional positive regard, is because therapy is not a space for judgment. It's not a space for right and wrong. It's more a space of exploration, validation, and greater understanding, right? And so when it comes to compliments, I mean, I wouldn't give a, I would never lie to a patient and say compliment them when I didn't mean it. But I would offer that unconditional positive regard where I validate and support, even if what they're saying is like, like even I've done this with you online, you guys could could probably agree with this is like, if we're having suicidal thoughts, I'm going to seek to understand you and validate that feeling. And, you know, try to figure out where it's coming from. Like, that's kind of a thing that we do, because me getting defensive or judgmental is just going to push you away and shut you down. And that doesn't uh, make for good therapy. And so I, I guess to answer this question, I know I'm kind of off topic a little bit, but I would say that Yes, therapists really mean it when they give you compliments. And also, in addition to, it does help build the therapeutic relationship. Does that make sense? Because we're, I, I've told a lot of my patients like, wow, you're, you're so strong. I don't think you realize how strong you are. Or, you know, I see all of the hard work that you've done. And I just want you to know that, that I'm very proud of you. I've said all sorts of stuff like that because I mean it and it's true. But it also, by doing that, by connecting and validating and giving the unconditional positive regard, we also build on the therapeutic relationship. And so, yeah, that's really, that's really my thoughts about it. And I know it's difficult for people. Some people left comments like, yeah, I never believe them. Or I like try to like, mm, no, shut it down. Or like, you don't have to say that. Or, you know, we try to negate a compliment. And that honestly, as a therapist, gives me more information on things, other things that we should work on. Because if we 
can't take compliments and we talk ourselves down to kind of negate the compliment that was given, it just shows me that we probably need to work on some self-confidence and self-talk and things like that because we're we're having such a tough time that even having a person in our life that is not, you know, is there only to support and help us and we don't believe what they say. You know, we won't even allow it in. We won't even entertain the idea that we could have some positive attributes. And so anyway, that's just something that, you know, as a therapist, I'd be like, okay, let's dig into that. That's something I'd probably make a note in because I, I take handwritten notes. If you guys don't know, I don't really like a laptop. I feel like having a laptop up is just not very therapeutic personally. So I'll take a little note and be like, come back to inability to accept a compliment. And, you know, we'll try to work on allowing that to happen and do some role play and stuff like that. So yes, we mean it. Yes, it also builds a therapeutic relationship. It's normal to struggle to accept compliments. A lot of us do that, that self-deprecation, the the talking ourselves down that really comes out of our own lack of self-confidence, the negative self-talk that we have all the time. And, and a lot of us have to struggle with that. It also could come from like past abuse, shame spirals and guilt and embarrassment that we feel constantly. Um, so be nice with yourself. It's okay. I know that it's hard because you're probably, the fact that we can't accept a compliment means we're really hard on ourselves, but just offer yourself a little bit of patience because talking it through, figuring out why this is so difficult really does help. And we'll get there, right? We'll get there all in due time. It's like I said, it's very common. Okay. Question number four says, hi, Katie, I was wondering if you're around a narcissist for a long period of time, like dating, married, or grew up with one, etc. Can their narcissistic qualities rub off on you, making you display their traits without actually being a narcissist yourself? Thank you for all that you do. I listen every week and always look forward to it. Yay. I'm so glad. I love this question. And I think there's a couple of things. First of all, in some way, things do rub off on us, but hang with me because that's not the full answer to this. Now, the first is that, yes, we can have some unhealthy behaviors and qualities around the relationships that we had in this scenario. Like if we had a narcissistic husband or wife or boyfriend, we were dating, married, right, whatever. If any of that was happening, we could have some... Uh, we might want to stonewall, meaning just shut down and like, nope, 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 I'm not going to hear you. Nope, nope. We might do some of that. We might find ourselves uh, wanting to gaslight someone because that's what was done to us. And so we can do behaviors because we can engage in narcissistic behaviors because that was what was shown to us and what we've learned or become accustomed to over the years. So there is some rub off. However, I do not believe, and I don't know of any research, I was actually reading something, this was like a couple months ago when I was working on a video about narcissism. There aren't any any indicators in research to show that just us having a relationship with a narcissist means that we will become one. That is not, I do not believe that to be true. And so, yes, we can pick up on behaviors because what we're around, we tend to become accustomed to, and those are ways that we tend to act and all of that. And so I would so yes, however, you're not going to become a narcissist yourself. And the truth about it is that if you're in therapy to try to heal from that narcissistic abuse, you'll you'll start to recognize some of the things that you do, some of the behaviors you don't like maybe that aren't as healthy for you and and work on it and get better. We all go through toxic relationships, right? I think of narcissistic relationships as very toxic ones. And 
even if it's a parent, we just get so used to that being how, how relationships run their course and the behaviors that come along with it. Those just become our norm that we have to push back. We have to fight back so that we can cultivate healthy, happy relationships in the future. That doesn't make us a narcissist. That just means that we we're used to that kind of relationship unfortunately. And it's going to take a little extra effort for us to get out of that pattern of behavior. Um, but being a narcissist, but being a narcissist, wow, I don't know why that was hard for me to say. Being a narcissist, actually, there's more to it than just those things. And so it's not just the qualities that we see on the outside. A narcissist is truly someone who is so so fragile, so sad on the inside, so lost that they put up this really angry and egotistical facade to protect them from the outside world because they they believe such nasty things about themselves. And that's the thing that's really hard for people to understand because narcissists can be really toxic and really terrible, but it's because they feel so toxic and terrible all the time. And so it's like, I'm not, and that's not condoning their behavior or saying it's okay because I don't care what we've all been through. We're all responsible for how we interact with other people and the things that we say and do. And so, even though narcissists tend to be people who've been through like a lot of trauma um, or emotional upset in their life, they, instead of trying to process it through and figure out new ways to act, put up this facade, act in really harmful ways to other people, abusive ways. Honestly, I think because they're so filled with hatred and anger themselves that it has no way to go but out. You know, they're so full of it. It's just like bleh, like a like an erupting volcano. Um, so anyways, that's I say that because, you know, being in a relationship with a narcissist doesn't mean that you're going to meet all this criteria and have this like shell of an inside person who feels really bad about themselves and you're putting up this really hardcore front. But there are behaviors in relationships that we will have to work through and make sure that we're not continuing to do them. But that's a great question. I know a lot of people worry about that. Like if I had a narcissistic parent, you tend to actually be more of an empath. And uh, because you're always trying to read the room to make sure you didn't upset them. So it's kind of almost goes the opposite way. And in the relationships, we can just tend to think that that's normal. And so we can pick fights and do things thinking that we're supposed, they're supposed to put us down or we're supposed to be in this scenario when we're really not. And it just takes us some time to kind of work it out. Okay, moving on to question number five and some more chapstick. It says, hey, Katie, another great question. What is a healthy amount of control? Hmm. I tend to feel all or nothing is the only approach join the club, black and white thinking, here we come. I try not to control others. Well, spoilers, you can't. But I feel like I'm the only thing I can control, which is true. So I can be a little rigid about living up to standards that I've set for myself. Thanks for all that you do. Of course, um, this is interesting. And there's this, I was thinking about this when I was eating before I did this because I was was having um, a, a snack. And control is an illusion. Because we cannot control anybody but ourselves. And even the control that we have over ourselves is limited because there are certain needs and things that as a human we're going to have to do that we don't have control over, meaning we have to sleep, we have to eat, we have to drink water. Um, you know, we have basic needs to keep us up and running. And so control as a whole to me is just an illusion to distract us from the pain we really feel. I know that might be hard for people to hear and hard to accept, but it's the truth. The sooner we can let go of this illusion or 
facade, if you will, if you will, of control, the sooner we will actually feel better. And I don't know, I, I just don't, it's interesting if you think about it that way, right? If we consider all the ways we try to control our life, I try to, you know, plan out my day so I can get everything done. And I try to make sure that I'm drinking enough water and I'm exercising enough so I have good heart health and I'm doing all this stuff and I'm trying to, you know, uh, act a certain way to Sean so that he responds the way that I need and I feel the support from him. If I'm doing all this stuff, life doesn't care. <laughs> and COVID happens and I could have a genetic predisposal for like heart disease. And I, I, and I don't mean to be like negative because that's not the goal. What I'm just telling you is that the control is a complete illusion. Even the control we have over ourselves is very limited. And so I would encourage you instead to be curious and journal about what the control does for you. What are the benefits of control? If you could control everyone, why do you think that would make you feel better? Hmm. What is it we think control gives us that allows it? What, like, what do we maybe think we're distracting from? I'm curious about that. Tell me more. What is it? Because I'll be honest, in the times that I became like a super, super control freak, it was because I felt in other ways, like my life was spiraling out of control. <laughs> like, I remember when I was in graduate school and I was broke because I was like working as a waitress, but I couldn't do it full time because I had to gain client hours, but I didn't get paid for any of those client hours. I even had to pay for my supervision a hundred bucks a month. It was rough, you guys. And things just felt insane. And I remember because I used to run back in the day. If you guys haven't been watching me for a long time, way back when I started, I talk about how I'm like a I used to run as a way to cope with things. And I think that's part of the reason why I understand eating disorders so well is because there's part of that little conversation in my brain that I can really attach to and understand like why that was happening. Anyway, I used to go running and you know, maybe three days a week. And then when things got stressful, I started running a lot. And my therapist was like, this is interesting. You know, uh, Katie, I'm curious. <laughs> You've been doing this and this doesn't seem like you. And her challenge was for me to stop running two days a week which normal Katie pre chaos and feeling out of control would have been like, okay, I already do that. Such a tough homework assignment, you know, thanks, um, Rebecca. But anyway, she said, no, you know, I want you to try this. And at the time I was like, oh my, oh my God. And she was like, well, if you don't think you can do it, you know, but that's your homework. And she was kind of pushing, leaning into the fact that she knew I'm like a do the homework type of person. And anyway, long story short, what I learned about that was that I was feeling out of control in other ways, and I didn't want to acknowledge my financial situation that was stressing me out and actually try to come up with real solutions. Instead, I just wanted to numb out and go for a run. And I know that's a weird example to explain this, but I think that this is kind of, that's that illusion of control. Me going for a run and thinking my life's like pretending that things are okay and all together was a fucking lie. Things weren't getting any better just because I was pretending to have control over something. It was just an illusion that I, it's like I painted this beautiful <laughs> uh, picture and I was living in it, but it wasn't real. You know, if you guys ever watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., it was like I was in the the simulation, you know, that anyway, I won't get into that too much because I know that not everybody watches Agents of, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but they get caught in this like program um, which is an illusion, a fake reality. And that's kind of what control is, is we're hopping into a fake reality. And so um, really, the 
that's how it's not really about finding a healthy amount of control. I want you to instead be curious about what the control offers you, how long you've been, you know, wanting this control. Um, what is it that, you know, we're really ignoring? How does someone taking away our control? Like if I told you any, all the things you're doing that, that you feel, uh, like you said, having really rigid standards, what if I told you for three days, I want you to not do anything? How would you feel? What comes up for you when I say that? And just be curious about it because that, that will give us the answers that will help us get a healthy level of control, which is very, very little amounts of it. (laughs) And just honestly, it's not so much control. I don't even like the word control. I think it's more about like understanding and acceptance. Like I was doing a yoga thing earlier today. I haven't done yoga in a month and it was pretty hard, but it was wonderful for me and a good stretch. And the yoga teacher on my laptop, you know, because it's all streaming now, she said something about like, how we try to force and we try to push. And they say that a lot. And, you know, especially when it comes to working out, like, and just push it, you got this. And she's like, what if instead we, we replaced all of the pushes it, pushing it and the forcing it with allow. And she's like, you can just allow yourself to get into the, a comfortable position, allow yourself to stretch to an amount that feels good. And so with this, instead of control, I would like to switch it out with allow. What are some things that we want to allow ourselves to do? What are the standards that we'd like to allow in our life? And, you know, knowing that they're flexible, nothing's rigid. Again, you know, flexibility is part of that too. But anyway, I could ramble on, but I would really just, that's what it is. There's no healthy amount of control. It's more about what the control serves. What purpose does it serve? Okay, moving on to question number six. Says, hey, Katie, I hope you're doing great. I am. Thank you. I am pretty, I'm a pretty shy person. And I struggle to make eye contact with people in my daily life. The only person I can look in the eyes without feeling embarrassed is my therapist. When I start, when I started therapy, I thought I was going to struggle to make eye contact with her as well, but I actually felt comfortable looking at her right from the first session. This seems so weird to me. And I can't understand how come I have a hard time looking in the, looking people in the eye, pretty much every single person in my life, but her, do you have any ideas? Okay. So I want to get the first one off um, and out because I'm sure everybody is thinking this is that. And I don't know if this is the case, but you can be assessed and figure it out. Uh, the autism spectrum disorders, ASD, can a, a symptom of that can make eye contact difficult, if not impossible. I've had patients over the years who are somewhere, and that's why it's like autism spectrum. I Back in the day, we used to have like autism and uh, Asperger's, but people kind of fall between the two in this like spectrum. And so... We talk about it more that way. And you could be slightly on the spectrum. It could be that that is where the, the difficulty with eye contact is coming from. However, the fact that it was easy with your therapist, like from the get, is suspicious to me. And it doesn't sound like ASD. I'm not a specialist in that realm. I do not work with um, ASD patients very much. I've had a couple of patients, especially my eating disorder patients who, um, you know, have ASD, but I also have them working with someone who specializes in that because it is its own unique uh, situation and own own unique uh, issues, I guess. So get checked out, see if that's it. But the fact that you can make eye contact with your therapist from the get, it's a little different. And so part of me wonders if it's anxiety driven, because you talk about being embarrassed, that you feel embarrassed if you look someone in the eye. And I would... uh, my my guesstimation is it's it's really intense social anxiety or social phobia. I have a video about that. You can watch it and see if you think it maybe, you know, sounds like you. 
And I'll also be coming out with an anxiety workbook. I had one in the past and I've trying to revamp them. Many of you wanted like paper versions. So I'm trying to figure out how I can print and ship them to you and stuff like that. Um, so I'm working on that right now. Uh, but that might be something in the future too that might be helpful. But I really think this is social anxiety. And if you guys don't know, a lot of social phobia comes from this intense fear of embarrassment in public that like something's going to happen and we're not going to be able to get out of there and we're going to be embarrassed and someone's going to say something, you know, and so it's, it's a lot about that worry of being embarrassed. And the fact that that's the word that you used and the fact that looking people in the eyes makes you feel embarrassed usually makes me think that that's where it's coming from. And I would guess that therapy itself, that scenario, even though it's anxiety provoking, maybe at the beginning, like, what do I expect? Ooh. But when we're in session, you're like, oh, Hmm. And your therapist hopefully is very calming. I I pride myself in having a, a great like calming voice and presence with my patients trying to hold, you know, the environment for them so that they can like tell me all the things they need to tell and feel like it's okay and I can I can handle it with them. I can hang with them. Um that's an important part of therapy and so that would be my guess as to why it's her, but I would love to know what your thoughts are. Does that sound like you? Maybe watch my videos on those two different topics and figure out what you think fits best because you're the expert in your experience. I'm just offering you what I know based on the symptoms and signs that you've told me. And those are the two that I think, I think potentially, and if, if it's not social anxiety, it could be generalized anxiety disorder or GAD. I have a video on that as well. You might want to check that out, but my get, my bet is on social anxiety. So keep us posted. Let us know what you find out. Okay. Moving on to question number seven says, Hey, Katie, how can I stop replaying the bad parts of my last therapy session in my head? Sounds a little OCD ish. Maybe I feel like my thoughts spin around around like I'm one of those teacup rides. It's nauseating. And with my appointments being every fortnight, which I think is every two weeks, it's exhausting. I told her about a new intrusive thought that I'd had, which freaked me out. She replied while taking notes with a sound, which my logical brain says was an empathic acknowledgement sound. But all I can think of is how stupid my confession must have sounded and that I shouldn't have mentioned it at all. Yeah, lots of judgment there. It just sends me into a spiral that I'm being dramatic and attention seeking. I had the impulse to act on it, but didn't. So it can't have been that bad. It wasn't that bad. Anyways, I hope you're doing well and find a place to buy soon. Me too. I hope we find a home soon. I am just keeping my fingers crossed. Um, it just the right one hasn't popped up yet, but she's out there. I, I have faith. Okay, so... If you guys don't know, Sean and I are looking to move to Austin, Texas. We just haven't found the right home yet. Okay, so and there was a comment on this question that was pretty much like my first knee-jerk reaction, which is more about like thought stopping. And I have some videos about thought stopping. You can just get on YouTube and type in Katie Morton thought stopping. They'll pop up. But I, I honestly think we may want to get you in to see an OCD specialist or add that on as a therapist, or tell your therapist you think that you're suffering from OCD. I don't know if that is your diagnosis, but you know, tell your therapist, hey, I think this might be what I'm struggling with. Can can I be assessed for this? Or are there workbooks or tools that could be helpful? And see what they have to say. Because the, the truth about OCD is that you can have pure OCD. I have a video about that too. Just look up Katie Morton, pure OCD. And that is specific to thoughts. But other OCD things are, are action-based or inaction, like, oh, I just can't, 
call this person because I, I don't want to be on the phone or I can't do this or that because it's of what I'm afraid it's going to do. And so if you don't know, OCD has obsessions, compulsions, and the obsessions are things that we think about and worry about and obsess over. And we believe that something bad is going to happen if we don't do the compulsion, which is the action or potentially the inaction, right? Not doing something. And so we kind of go round and round with these obsessive, intrusive thoughts, and then we have to act on them in some way. And, and it's really uncomfortable all the time. So anyways, um, my thoughts are really around that, that I think it's probably a little bit OCD based. And the ways to stop are to thought stop for now. That that can be really beneficial. And the way that we thought stop is we say stop, 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 in our head or out loud until the thoughts, those spiraling, replaying, stop for good. Then I want you to pull your brain into a, a better memory, something happy, something really emotionally driven, like the time you know, I don't know, a a favorite vacation of yours or a really important anniversary of some sort that you got to spend with someone that you cared about, whether it's like a good friend or a relationship anniversary, or let's say it's the first time you got your own place and moving in and being excited. It could be any number of things that felt good for you. That one really nice day you had with your mom, brother, friend, whatever, any of those things, pull yourself to that place to that memory and tell it to me in as much detail as possible. What are you wearing? What what smells do you smell? What are you eating? Uh, what 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 is how's the fabric feel on your skin? What are you thinking about? I want you to take me there. So do that and that will stop that from replaying. And then another technique is really just to distract. So once we've done the stop, 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 then do something else. Watch something that's very intriguing, like a documentary or a a show that you just really like to watch that keeps you engaged. Read a book that does that or something that keeps your mind going and thinking and wondering so that we can't think about the therapy session. And then my last kind of little bit about this is please tell your therapist about this. Please let them know that this is happening because Again, I'm, I really think this is OCD in some way. And so we're going to have to try to figure that out. And there are another tool and something that your therapist might have you do is while we're trying to like thought stop and distract, like finding some things that are soothing for our system can be helping, can be helpful too. Meaning like if we feel really frazzled and fried and on edge, if we're replaying these things and we just feel more and more uncomfortable. And like sometimes some of my patients say they get like overly anxious and they start to sweat just thinking about stuff. And so instead of allowing our nervous system to get on overload, we have to find some calming things like laying on the couch under a lot of blankets or taking a warm bath or going for a walk or even doing that shakeout that I've been talking about to like regulate your nervous system, like shake out your body, any of those things. Um, yeah, giving yourself a foot rub, calling a good friend that's understanding and supportive. There's a lot of ways we can calm our system down, but just making time for that, I think will really help. And so, yeah, those are some of my thoughts. And then this last thing, cause I can't hold myself is I want you to pay attention to your, your self-talk because it's so judgmental. Like I want to, I want to come to your aid and like combat these thoughts. Cause it's like, this is so stupid. What I did, I didn't act on it. So I couldn't have been that bad. I'm just dramatic intention seeking, like all these negative thoughts. I want you to recognize those and maybe try to come up with something that's a little bit more balanced, like being dramatic and attention seeking. Is it possible that it just made you really uncomfortable? And so you want to share it with the person that you pay to listen to you 
like talk about things that are hard for you. Maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe that's a little bit more balanced. Are we really attention seeking if we only told one person? Hmm. Let's check those facts. I would just kind of push back on that because it sounds, it sounds a little negative, a little hard. And I want you to stop that. You stop that. You're a wonderful person and I want you to be able to see it and believe it. And we have to get you there. So pay attention to those things and don't allow them to hang out in your brain any longer than they should, which is they shouldn't be there at all. Okay. Question number eight says, is psychosomatic pain a real thing? Oh, 100%. If so, how could one differentiate psychosomatic pain from physical pain? And then somebody left a comment below this that said, or just chat about psychosomatic symptoms in general. Oof, I've gotten sick with full-blown sinus infections, fever, chills, upset stomach, etc. Yes, very. Yes, yes, yes. So yes, psychosomatic pain is a real thing. And if you're wondering, Katie, what the fuck is that word psychosomatic? Psychosomatic means that it is pain caused or pain that we feel or not even pain, just like symptoms in our body that's caused by our mental illness. Meaning that if we have depression, like this is an example, if we have depression, depression can cause me to feel super lethargic and to have body aches. But I don't have a fever. I don't have a cold that would normally accompany that exhaustion and body aches. It's my depression. Or another example, anxiety can make my heart race, can make my palms sweat, and can make it difficult. I can have racing thoughts, can be really difficult for me to concentrate, right? Those are all symptoms in our body expressing what we're feeling in our mind. Because, like I've been saying forever, physical health and mental health are inextricably linked. And so that's why we work together towards what? A healthy mind and a healthy body. Okay. Anyways, done joking around. I just had to put that in there. But So psychosomatic pain is real. And the way that we differentiate it from physical pain is getting things checked out. I am always referring my patients to their regular general practitioner doctor to make sure that that the issue that we're experiencing isn't organic in nature, meaning that there isn't something in our environment or in our body that's causing it. Because like, for instance, if you thought that you were having a panic attack or feeling anxious, like your heart was racing, and then you learned that you had like an irregular heartbeat or like um, AFib, then that could maybe account for that. And then it might not actually be anxiety. The symptoms that we're experiencing, we thought were anxiety, could be organic in nature. Your heart could have arrhythmia. So there, there are things that we should get checked out. Also, like if you have body aches, maybe we do need to go get tested for strep throat or, you know, a a swab to see if we have COVID or, you know, there are things that we can do to see if there's something else going on. We have the flu, what is this, strep throat, whatever. Um, Get those things checked out because if the symptom that we're experiencing can be explained by something organic, then we have that answer that that, okay, that's the cause. Although I will throw in this caveat that it can be both things. Like the person who left a comment said, I've been gotten sick with full bone sinus infections. Yeah, we can mentally exhaust ourselves to the point where we do get physically ill. Um, I can't tell you how many of my patients report having like diarrhea, nausea, upset stomach in general, because of anxiety. And so we can cause a physical thing to happen because of our brain, because you know, of our mental illness. However, again, going back to like, my comment about them being inextricably linked our brain and our body they are and it doesn't to me it doesn't really matter which where it comes from we just need to get checked out for both so that we can get treatment for whatever's going on right like if we do get 
uh, a full-blown sinus infection, we still need that infection to be treated. But then we also need to recognize that maybe it was our high levels of anxiety or stress for the last six months that led to that. And how can we better manage that or make sure we're getting enough sleep? Um, you know, if our racing thoughts are stopping us from sleeping, how can we get a better sleep hygiene schedule? It's, you know, things like this. So anyway, um, it's important that we get th- both things checked out. That's only the real reason or the only real reason that we'd need to know where it's coming from, because our system, our entire body, brain included, is trying to tell us something and we need to get that sussed out to figure out what it is and what's causing it. Okay, question number nine it says, hey, Katie, happy Thursday, happy Thursday. Every once in a while, I have a feeling of intense anxiety or feeling down for no reason at all. I feel like I have um, have to have a reason for why I feel the way that I do or else I'll overthink it and don't and I don't like not having a reason. Could there be a reason for this? And is this a normal thing to experience? Um, okay, a lot to unpack here. So you don't always have to have a reason that you consciously are aware of. For instance, my, my patients with depression or anxiety can feel like it just comes out of nowhere. And if I ask somebody, what caused, you know, right now I can tell you're kind of getting anxious. Like what caused it? Oh, I don't know. Or what led to that panic attack that you had? Oh, I don't know. It came out of nowhere. I was just sitting at my desk doing my normal thing and then boom. Or I was getting ready for work and suddenly all of my energy just drained and I just felt so hopeless and helpless about my life. It can come out of nowhere. But the truth is, there actually is a reason. It could A, be your brain because we know depression or anxiety come from uh, lack of dopamine, norepinephrine. It could be we have um, other issues in our neurotransmitters where there's either too much or not enough of something that we need. And I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of this. I'm contemplating doing some more like sciencey videos about the brain. Let me know if you like the, that idea because I think it could be cool. But there could be that reason. And that's a real fucking reason. We wouldn't question someone like, again, going back to sinus infection, I was talking about in the previous question, we wouldn't question someone saying that they had a sinus infection. That's why they don't feel good. So why are we questioning the fact that our brain doesn't have all the chemicals it needs to operate fully? And so we don't feel good. Like, I don't know why that's any different. And I always give people pushback on that because I'm like, well, that's just as serious as any other illness doesn't matter that it's in our brain. Arguably, our brain is like the hard drive for our entire body. So it's kind of serious. It's kind of a big deal. We should take kind of we should, you know, take good care of it. But so that could be the reason. And then also, and more importantly, what I would work on it with, you know, like if you were in therapy, this would be like the core of what you would work on is figuring out what is the reason. Because even if we feel like, okay, so let's say it's a chemical imbalance. I don't even like using that word because it's just so vague. And that's why I'm like, I'll probably do some more nerdy videos for you guys, but I'm debating whether it needs to be animated or it's just me explaining it on a whiteboard or what do we want to do? I don't know. I don't know yet. But because um, animation is super, super expensive. So we'll figure it out. But so that could be happening. This, you know, brain stuff that we don't want to get into too much detail because it gets start confusing real quick. Or there could have been, or there probably was, a buildup of some sort. Meaning, even though our anxiety feels like it comes out of nowhere, do we struggle with self-confidence and shit talk ourselves constantly? Do we worry a lot about things maybe going wrong? Have we had a really stressful week and maybe a lot of things are being asked of us? Have we not been sleeping well and just not quite feeling great? And then on day seven or eight of this stuff going on, we have a panic attack? It's possible. Could that have led up to it? 100%. Could the same result have been a depressive episode? You betcha. 
Could we all of a sudden, like I was talking when we first started about feeling like I hit a wall. Could that have happened because of your depression? Yes, it could. So there probably is a reason in there because there's a buildup of, of situations and it doesn't have to be like a big situation either. Don't feel like we need to judge any of these reasons. The reasons are just the reasons. Did you feel overwhelmed? Did you feel super down? Did, you, did it take away your ability to do what you needed to do? If it's, if it's impairing your functioning, it's important to note. And often we just brush off all these little things issues that have happened and we judge them as being little and not important and blah, blah, blah. But really with all of them together, we find ourselves feeling completely like blown over by them, overwhelmed. And then, you know, anxiety, feeling down, stuff like that. It gets to us. So I would assume that that if you dig into that, you'll find the quote unquote reason, but also know that you don't have to have a reason at all reach out to someone and get some support because symptoms of mental illness can come and go. Everybody's different. That's kind of why I love and hate the DSM at the same time is because they have like, it must all, must last all day for uh, every day for at least two weeks or something. You know, that's de- depression, part of the diagnostic criteria. And some people will be like, you know, a week and a half or something. And I'm like, I still think it's depression. But, you know, the DSM doesn't say it is. And that's kind of frustrating. So don't feel like you have to meet all that criteria, but we should figure out what the reasons behind if there are triggers so we can better manage them, all that stuff. Figuring out what could have led up to it for us can help us better manage and help us prepare ahead or do things in the meantime to hopefully get it to a point where we can stop it from happening. But there's also the component of stuff happening in our brain and we shouldn't discredit that. That's a big issue and that's a big reason. And yeah, you're not alone. Anxiety and depression are super common. I don't know if that's helpful at all to know, but they're the two most common mental illnesses in the world. And I want to say anxiety is the most common with like 30 million people who suffer annually or 40 million, something like that. Some huge number anyway. I don't want to mis- misuse statistics, but statistics are always kind of like, eh, what does that mean anyway? But I believe it that anxiety is the most common. So yeah, check into those things and keep me posted. And our final question, question number 10 says, Hi, Katie. Should uh, should I and how should I approach the topic of touch starvation in therapy? I struggle with touch starvation and didn't really have that need fulfilled as a kid, but I don't like to talk about it in therapy because it'd be weird knowing that my therapist gives hugs after hard sessions only pre-COVID and that might stop. Okay, I get it. You're afraid to mention it because it might be taken away. And obviously that was pre-COVID, but you'd be surprised what therapists understand. And touch starvation is a real thing. And I really think that yes, you should approach the subject because it's important to you and it's affecting you. Those are the things, if it's important to you and you find it you know, affecting your ability to function, then it's it's a big enough deal to talk about and to bring up in therapy. Heck, I tell my therapist things that I'm like, I don't even know if this is important, but ugh, I, I just dump everything. And I've told you guys this before, but I really believe that the more we can share with our therapist, whether or not we think it's important, isn't always that big of a deal. If it's bugging us at that time, let them know because the more information we have, the better puzzle we can kind of put together to offer you more tools. Like I'm trying to piece together what's happening so that I can give you the best support and the best resources that I have available. And so the more you tell me, the better those resources will get. Um, And so I I would bring it up. And the way that I would broach the subject would be by saying something like, you know, I know we've talked, hopefully, but maybe not. But I know we've talked a little bit about my childhood and 
how it was, I was definitely neglected. And something I've been realizing, especially because of COVID, is how touch starved I was as a child and, and still kind of feel as an adult. And you could even bring it back to COVID again and say, like, especially with COVID happening, I feel like the touch that I used to get, like healthy physical touch with people, isn't happening and it's really devastating. Um, and then you can talk about it. I, I know that there are certain things that we can do to to get some loving touch from ourselves and stuff. I don't think it's as good. I think, um, you know, finding some close friends who who care enough to listen to us and understand our situation um, is the best. And then asking them for, you know, a hug or a back, a back rub, you know, just like rubbing on your back or touching you on the arm. I personally am a very touchy person because my family is just that way. So if one of my friends said, oh, you know, I just feel like touch starved. I'd be like, well, I'll give you a hug. You just let me know when I'll just give you a hug. I can play with your hair. I can rub your back. I can uh, grab onto your arm if we're walking. I can do all, I mean, obviously it's all pre-COVID in a way too, but we can safely do certain things. There might be people that we live with who love us and understand, but that's how I would bring it up is like, I know we've talked about my childhood and how, you know, in some ways I was neglected, but there's nothing weird about it. And I, I just want you to know that, that like even your therapist giving hugs after hard sessions, I offer that to my patients too. They have to ask for it because a lot of people become very, oh, if a therapist tries to hug or asks to hug. So I always wait for them to ask me, but there's nothing weird about that. And I wouldn't be weirded out if my patients said they were touch starved, even more reason for me to offer some healthy physical touch between two humans who all, we all need touch. There's nothing strange about it. Nothing creepy. I wouldn't take it away from a patient because of that. That would be like the opposite of what I would do. I think it's just more talking about how it feels for you and what's going on. And, you know, I would start with this stuff as a kid and how you definitely know that no one was very huggy or lovey or touchy when you were a child and and you still find yourself wanting to fill that void. It's in the same way that we talk about attachment and so many other things in therapy. If our parents didn't give us something that we desperately needed, we try to find other ways to get it met. And I've had patients who uh, there used to be, and this is, this is obviously pre-COVID, and it kind of sounds creepy, but it was helpful for, it was just, this was helpful for one patient. Okay. They were cuddle meetups via, I think meetup.com. Maybe it was Craigslist. Does anybody remember these? Anyway, I was kind of worried about her, but she went with a, a friend. So she wasn't going alone. It was in the middle of the day and people would just go and like cuddle. And it sounds weird. And when she first told me about it, I was like, you be safe. I'm scared. Don't please. Okay. Tell me where you're going to be, you know, bring a friend, go in the middle of it. So many things that I had her do. Let me know you're there. Let me know when you leave. (laughs) Made me very nervous, but it was super healing for her. And it turned out the group that she was a part of was great and super supportive. And they created them. So they said, because of stuff like this, and I know COVID has ruined that, but that doesn't mean that it's not something that your therapist is going to be aware of or something that other people aren't struggling with too, because you're not alone. A lot of us, especially now more than ever, just need some loving, basic physical touch from someone who cares about us, a hug, a a pat on the back, even geez, you know, we need that. And so that's how I'd bring it up. No, you're not alone. And there will be some probably some tools that they're going to offer to you to help you kind of give some of the touch to yourself. But Also, I think a lot of it's just learning to verbalize it to people that we care about so that we can get our needs met. Because part of, I feel like all therapy is just learning to assert ourselves and speak up about our needs so that someone who cares about us can offer 
to meet those needs and to, to support us in the way that we are asking or the way that we, to use that word again, need. Because <laughs> um, it's okay. And that's what friends are for and family is for, is to help us out. I hope you found those answers helpful. Those are great questions as per usual. I think they're all super interesting and and all different topics. So thank you so much for listening. Please share this podcast. If you find it helpful, share it with a friend, share it on your Facebook page or on Instagram. All of that really, really helps. That's truly the best way to support um, because I love doing this and I hope you find it helpful too. And I hope those people around you who know you find it helpful as well. Have a wonderful week and I will see you next time. Or why you've hit a plateau Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know Ask Kate